Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. If you're a regular listener, you know I am obsessed with coffee. My love affair with coffee started over 25 years ago. I drink it daily, I drink it early, and I drink it often. On a typical day, I'll have around five to six cups. Now, if I'm going to drink so much of something, I want to feel confident that it's good for my health. So you can imagine how freaked out I was when I found out that many coffee beans actually contain mold and microscopic toxins. Mold can form on coffee beans when they are grown, stored, or transferred in a moist, warm environment, and the supply chain of coffee makes it particularly susceptible to mold and the toxic chemicals called mycotoxins. According to some analysis, up to 50% of beans tested positive for mycotoxins, which can cause serious liver and kidney issues in high doses. Mycotoxins are almost impossible to see or taste, unlike the mold you might see from water damage in your house. And the effect that mycotoxin exposure has on humans isn't entirely clear, and there's a level of uncertainty that I, as a coffee lover, am just not comfortable with. I believe in compromise, but not when it comes to what I'm putting into my body. When I drink something so often, I want to know that I'm giving myself all the best possible benefits and not ingesting anything that is going to potentially negate all the other good stuff I'm doing. And once I learned about all the bad stuff like mold, mycotoxins, and other contaminants in coffee, I knew it was time to work on a better product. And I started asking myself the following questions. Would it be possible to source a USDA certified organic coffee that was high in polyphenols and had no mold, mycotoxins, pesticides? pesticides, and heavy metals? And would we be able to test for all of the above? Could we find a coffee that meets all of our aforementioned standards and actually tastes great? No one wants to drink healthy coffee that tastes like crap. We want it to taste good. It took over a year, but we found a solution that delivers in full. Clean Coffee Plus. Our brand new coffee is handled in a way that reduces the risk of fungal growth and is rigorously tested for mold and mycotoxins, along with other nasties like pesticides and heavy metals. The testing that we do gives me confidence that the product I am drinking multiple times a day has nothing to hide. We test for an exhaustive battery of contaminants, four heavy metals, 10 microbial tests, 21 mycotoxins, 300 plus pesticides, and 20 solvents. I absolutely love our new Clean Coffee Plus, and I know you will too. So go to shop.mindbuddygreen.com backslash coffee20 to get 20% off your first order. You are going to love this coffee, and I really hope you try it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We know there's no single recipe for lifelong happiness, but certain ingredients do play a role in your overall joy. So what's on the menu? Dr. Arthur Brooks is here to share the playbook with tips on how to maintain deep friendships, find your purpose, and strengthen your metaphorical happiness muscles. As a reminder, Arthur is a social scientist and professor at Harvard, where he teaches courses on leadership, happiness, and social entrepreneurship. He is the author of 13 books and a columnist at The Atlantic, where he writes a weekly How to Build a Life column, and his latest best-selling book was co-written with Oprah. Yes, Oprah Winfrey. I could have talked to Arthur for hours. He is such a deep thinker and incredible speaker, and it's an honor to have him back on the show to discuss everything he's learned about happiness. So what are the biggest myths about happiness in 2023? The biggest myth is that happiness is the goal. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, people ask people all the time, what do you want? They say, I want to be happy. What do you want for your kids? I want them to be happy. No, you don't. Actual complete happiness would be unbelievably dangerous and destructive because it would require a lack of negative emotion. 
you know, when, when at any particular moment, how happy you feel has to do with your mood balance and, and negative emotions, which are not the same as bad emotions because there aren't any bad emotions, are simply information about the outside environment and you're appropriately getting signals in your brain that you should feel fear or anger or disgust or sadness. And these are things that you've evolved to feel to keep you alive and thriving and learning and growing. Now they can be maladapted, they can be too much, but the truth is to say, I wanna be, I wanna be happy, is basically saying I wanna get rid of all these things that keep me alive and growing and thriving. So number one, the goal is not happiness. The goal is, as you know, Oprah Winfrey in our book calls it happierness. It's actually making progress so that you can understand and manage your emotions and learn from the inevitable bad times and help them, help them make the good times better. That's number one. The second is that happiness is a feeling. Second big error. Happiness is a feeling. I want to feel happy. And part of this is because we live in the era of feelings where people are talking about their feelings all the time. But feelings, once again, these emotions are simply information from the limbic system of your brain about what's going on around you and how you should react. And to say that you're going to reduce happiness, this cosmic, almost mystical thing to a set of feelings that you hope you get from time to time is like basically reducing the, 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 the reducing your delicious dinner to the smell of the dinner. Feelings are nothing more than, than evidence of happiness. And so we shouldn't be thinking about the feelings any more than we should be obsessing about how the turkey smells as opposed to actually enjoying the Thanksgiving dinner on Thanksgiving. So do you think many of us are walking around thinking we're unhappy when the reality is we're probably happier than we actually realize? Well, we're focusing necessarily on our negative emotions and we have a tendency to do that. We're evolved to, ha to, to have something called the negativity bias, which is, uh, I mean, we literally have more brain tissue dedicated to negative emotions than positive emotions. And the reason is because positive emotions are nice to have, negative emotions keep you alive. And so you're going to pass down your genes more likely if you have a, an, a super abundance of negative emotions. And so the result is we have a negativity bias when things are actually pretty good, where, you know, where people are complaining about my, my, my meal wasn't hot as I sit in first class on United Airlines. You know, they're, they're, they're focused on the wrong thing a lot because the brain encourages us to do so. So are we happier? No. We're not more happy, we're not happier than we think we are, but what we are is is focused in a maladapted way on the parts of our lives that are negative as opposed to positive. And we could very pretty straightforward way refocus, which is a lot of what my work is about, is getting people to refocus such that they can enjoy their lives more. How do you define happiness? Seems like we've just got it completely wrong. People involved in neuroscience and social science like me, they define it in a bunch of different scientific ways with respect to the function or, you know, uh, with, with respect to mood balance. They're all different ways to do so. But I think that the best functional way to, to understand happiness that's in accord with the research is that it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it's like your Thanksgiving dinner in terms of its macronutrients. So you'd say, what's Thanksgiving dinner? Well, you could say it's a bunch of ingredients or a bunch of dishes. But if you're, you know, like you and me, nutrition nerds, you'd say it's protein, carbohydrates, and fat. And if you want your meals to actually sustain you appropriately, you need to know your macronutrient balance and make sure that it's not out of whack. For most people my age, I'm 59 years old, they're, getting, they're not getting enough protein. They're simply not getting enough protein because protein synthesis is really inefficient at that age. And so when I adjust people's meals because they feel better, I cut down the carbohydrates, I moderate the fat, and I increase the lean protein in their diet. It's just a very common thing to do. Okay, now, why do I make that metaphor? Because the same thing is true for happiness. Happiness is best defined in terms of its macronutrients. The three elements of a happy life have to do with enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. Those are the three things that everybody needs in both balance and abundance. So when I meet somebody for the first time who's not very happy, I start by digging into their macronutrient profile to see where they're deficient. Sometimes they don't have enough sense of meaning in their life and we'll work on that. Sometimes their satisfaction is goofed up because they can't defer their gratification. Satisfaction is the joy you get after struggle or they're trying not to struggle or they're too uncomfortable with feeling suffering and sacrifice and so they don't get satisfaction or, or worse than this is the most common thing I see with young adults. They don't have very much enjoyment. All they have is pleasure. And seeking pleasure instead of enjoyment is a huge mistake that a lot of people make. And I can pretty easily tighten that up in people's lives and give them better protocols. So walk us through that one, enjoyment versus pleasure. Yeah, I mean, that you'll find them as basic synonyms in the dictionary, but that's quite wrong. 
pleasure is a limbic phenomenon. The limbic system is the console in the brain evolved over a 40 million year period that creates cravings and desires and emotions. It takes outside signals. We have a million ways, literally, to, to ascertain what's going on outside ourselves. And then that information is transmitted from different structures in the brain, usually in the brainstem, to the limbic system in the center of our brains, where the information is then in a kind of a machine language turned into feelings, turned into emotions, trained, turned into cravings and desires. Those cravings and desires and emotions are then delivered to the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the most evolved part of the brain. It's been the way it is now over the past 250 years only. It's quite new, where we can decide what they mean and how to act. If you're living only according to what the limbic system delivers to you, you're not a fully evolved human, quite frankly. The limbic system gives you pleasure. It's tapping a part of the limbic system called the ventral striatum, which is a part of the brain that says, that feels good, do it again. Why? Because it's, it's, it's associated with different behaviors and activities and substances that are more likely, a long time ago, to make you survive and pass on your genes. So high caloric foods, sweet things, uh, sex even with strangers, all those things are associated with pleasure. And then we supercharge them in the lab by creating things like fentanyl and pornography, which are you know dangerous things to hit the ventral striatum again and again and again and again so that we'll get the pleasure. The problem with that is that doesn't deliver happiness because it's ephemeral. It's also addictive. All the things that are sources of pleasure, frequently what they're doing is that they're, they're giving us addictive behaviors that we're pursuing alone, leading to destroying relationships by by substituting those pleasureful activities for the social activities that we that really give us happiness in our lives. So when I'm talking to young people about that, you know, it's very easy to fall into a puritanical framework and say don't do those things, but that's not quite right. I mean, look, if you're an addict, don't do those things. But but when when it comes to sources of pleasure, you don't need to take them away. You need to add two things to turn them into enjoyment. And those two things are people and memory. You want to experience the source of pleasure in your prefrontal cortex. And the way that you do that is by, by mixing them with social relationships and creating memories so that they become an enduring part of your happiness profile so that you can call, recall them again and again. Back to Thanksgiving. Nobody eats Thanksgiving dinner alone. You don't eat your Thanksgiving turkey, no matter how much you like turkey. You don't eat it all by yourself on Thanksgiving because it's not enjoyable. It's not something that you would enjoy. The reason for Thanksgiving dinner is to take something you like, a delicious 5,000 calorie meal, you mix it with people and make a memory, and that's a source of enjoyment and that leads to your happiness. So the rule of thumb for a lot of young people today, or people my age or your age too, is if something is addictive and is a source of pleasure, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. If you're doing it alone and it's addictive, you're probably doing it wrong is the way that it comes down to. And that describes... Alcohol abuse, um, drug addiction, um, compulsive gambling, use of pornography, all these things involve pleasure, um, craving, and being alone, which means you can't turn these things into a source of enjoyment and they can't be part of your happiness. I tend to think of the cliche of the classical midlife crisis where someone needs a, a bigger bang for their buck in terms of pleasure, you know, a better car, maybe another spouse or because they're, they're used to these big wow moments and they need to go bigger versus this, this notion of, I view like enjoyment's more of the long game. Yeah. 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 Well, this is, you're, you're, you're actually bringing up a very deep neuroscientific point, which is that when we are searching for pleasure and we're basically trying to satisfy our limbic system as opposed to, you know, doing something that's fully human involving the prefrontal cortex, we're actually accustoming the brain <clears throat> using the neuromodulator of dopamine to give us the anticipation of reward. And, and we get good at it, we become inured to it, and we, and, and we need more and more and more. That, everybody knows that addiction is something where you need more to get the same satisfaction that you had before. You have the same sense of completion that you had before. That's why you need more meth, you need more alcohol, you need more and more extreme versions of events. You need to gamble more money, whatever it happens to be. And when it comes to success, if you're a success addict, which is the basis of workaholism, self-objectification, destruction of relationships, you need more and more audacious rewards for your success, which is why people need more bling. They need more money. 
And if you don't figure that out, you know, I've, you know, you and I have met a lot of billionaires. And if you don't figure this out, the first thing that a billionaire will say to himself or herself is, I guess I needed another billion. <laughs> I see it in health too these days. Another couple minutes in the cold plunge, you know, or, or, or HRV needs to be higher. I need, you know, an extra two sessions of occlusion training for my biceps or whatever it happens to be this week. Right. I mean, totally, you know, that's a, and that's because people take pretty dysfunctional relationships with substances and behaviors in their life. And they try to turn them into something healthy and make those things unhealthy too. I do want to spend a moment there because you say in the book, extremes are unhealthy. And from my vantage point, I think many leaders in the health and wellness space right now are definitely leading extreme. Uh, and, and they're, I think there's a lot of good there. They could be spending their time in different, you know, corners of the internet, if you will, uh, in areas you mentioned previously, but I think, oh, wow, like there's, there's a lot of extreme here. I agree. This is unhealthy. What do you think it says about what, what what's appealing to us? Yeah. Well, success addicts are always success addicts. And so, you know, I'll talk to people that, that are, you know, huge CEOs and, you know, step back from their jobs because they, they can't stand it anymore. They get retired or whatever it happens to be. And then they take up tennis. And then within six months, they're, they're playing tennis six hours a day and they've got a coach and they're going to, you know, and, and they're traveling for tennis tournaments and, and clinics and master classes. And they're, they're once again, marginalizing their marriages and 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 they're they want to get on this on the senior circuit amateur circuit and they've just turned it into another source of success addiction is what it comes down to and you know this is these are pathologies is what it comes down to and so to say health and wellness means that there's certain things that are really bad like getting addicted to meth and certain kinds of addictive behaviors are really good like you know cold plunges or counting calories or whatever it is Look, the latter's better than the former, don't get me wrong, but the, the, the underlying pathology is still the underlying pathology. We need to be fully alive as human beings and, and substituting our specialness for our happiness with any substance or activity is a deleterious and dangerous thing to do. And what about the next one, satisfaction? What are we getting wrong there? Satisfaction is, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's something that everybody who's listening to the, you know, this podcast is really actually pretty used to because what it is, is the joy that comes after struggle. That's what it is. And there's nobody who's cold plunging, who's doing it because they're just like, oh, the cold plunge itself feels so good. It's because doing it as, as a whole requires this struggle and this conquering of oneself and the sense of discipline. And it does feel so good afterward. That's a miniature version of this one pillar of happiness that everybody needs to defer their gratification and to go through struggle to get something that's very sweet. We're evolved for rewards. We're evolved to want to do hard things to get audacious rewards. That's the reason that our ancestors in the Pleistocene were able to chase down an antelope. And, and the reason we're willing to risk our lives to climb a tall tree to get that piece of fruit because we want the reward and the struggle per se actually adds to the sweetness of that reward. That's how satisfaction works. The problem is that mother nature, mother nature swindles us in that bargain by telling us that once we get the reward, we're going to enjoy it forever. So your friends who've got the bling down in Miami, they're like, man, I get that, that Bentley SUV. You're like, I didn't know they made those. Yeah. It turns out and if I get the Bentley SUV, it's going to be awesome. Well, the new car smell, even in a Bentley SUV, is going to be gone in a couple of months. You know, even the sunshine in Miami, which is wonderful, is going to wear off on your mood after six months. I'm in California right now. You know, people come here all the time for the sunshine. I say six months of happiness and then taxes are forever. You know, the, the truth is that you think it's going to last forever because Mother Nature is telling you it's going to. And that's the real that that's the, the 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 frustration that people have is that they think that the satisfaction is going to last and it doesn't because they have a misunderstanding about what we call what's what we in the social science world talk about is homeostasis that's the brain's natural tendency to return to equilibrium emotionally and so you know your your brain recalibrates to something that's really wonderful to go back to the search. So you're back in the hunt. Mother Nature wants you in the hunt, but she doesn't want you to figure it out so you don't stop hunting to say, oh, you know, if I get the Bentley, it's not going to be that great, but I'm going to have car payments for a long time. So she wants you to keep doing that so you keep getting ahead is the way that that basic, basically works. And so that the, the solution to that, like the solution to the enjoyment problem was that you've got to add people and memory 
the problem of satisfaction, of enduring satisfaction, comes from not simply trying to have more. It's rather, it's understanding that satisfaction comes from a, a, a model in your mind of the things that you have divided by the things that you want. Haves divided by wants. So you can keep trying to increase the numerator of the satisfaction equation, or you can do much better by trying to manage the denominator of the satisfaction equation. And if you can learn how to want less, your satisfaction is actually gonna endure a lot better. My guess is one way to be effective there is spend a lot less time, I'll hold up the iPhone on the, uh, the, com the comparison machine known as Instagram or TikTok. Totally. That's one way to do it. I mean, the whole idea of just being able to shop all the time is a huge problem. And so, you know, people are spending huge, inordinate amounts of time on Amazon, you know, constantly just looking at the things that they would want. And if I had that, here's how I would feel. And these are ways to anesthetize ourselves largely by, you know, thinking about how wonderful it would be getting a little bit of the brain chemistry you would get if you actually have the thing. And and that's not healthy is the way that that works because that engorges the wants, makes you ultimately feel less satisfaction. It makes you more of an addict to these worldly rewards. And what about meaning? Yeah. To me, this one's paramount of the group. That's the hard one. That's the hard, I mean, look, enjoyment and satisfaction are plenty hard. I mean, actually, which is all good news because this gives us a roadmap for all the things that we can do <clears throat> in our lives, which is wonderful. Meaning is actually three problems in one. So philosophers and psychologists, they kind of break up the problem of life's meaning, which is the why of your life. You know, why? Not what, not what are you doing, but why are you doing what you're doing? Really into the coherence, that the buckets of coherence, purpose, and significance. So coherence is things happen for a reason. What is it? I can't tell you what it is. You gotta have your own hypothesis. Significance is that my life has directionality to it. It has a sense of goals and trajectory. I'm going in a particular direction. I'm not just turning in circles. And significance is that it matters that I walk the earth. It would matter if I weren't here. And so if you, if you understand those things and you have a sense of what the answers to those questions are, you're fine. One way to, to think about this even more simply is to break it into two really simple questions. And you need answers to the questions, which are your answers, not like your mom's answers or politically correct answers or one you would give in a presidential debate. Why are you alive? And for what would you be willing to die? If you have answers to those questions, then, then meaning is good. But if you don't, it means you have a crisis of meaning. And the best news is that those are the two questions to go looking for answers for. Well, to me, this seems like a cousin of spirituality and speaks of the power of a spiritual practice. I know in the book, you referenced Dr. Lisa Miller, who is a friend of ours. She also lives in Miami, Arthur, you know. Does she live in Miami? I thought she was out of Columbia. She does. She splits, she splits her time. Good for Lisa. I mean, Lisa's got the secret of happiness, man. I think things are swinging in a way that's very positive for Miami in terms of how she spends that time. I got to go to Miami. I guess all the cool kids are moving to Miami, you know. You'd be a big hit here. Uh, but she makes, you know, I, I think for, for us, the, the case for spirituality that she makes when you talk about mental health and kids in depression and i think the number was when when parent and child or grandparent and child didn't really matter but as long as there was a strong spiritual strong quote-unquote spiritual connection between a child and a caregiver that child was five times less likely to be depressed and she had a very broad definition of spirituality you could go to actually church service you could you know have a gratitude practice it could be prayer like it was broad and inclusive in any, any way you think about it when you think of like mental health and happiness you're talking about meaning if i'm if i'm a child and and that's my foundation i'm going to be pretty good here yeah yeah no for sure i mean that's one of the reasons that i talk about the the one of the, the habits of the happiest life is what we call in the vernacular faith and and i've, I've relied a lot on lisa miller's work I and mean, just on, on the basic brain science of metaphysical and, and and transcendent experiences and the reason for this has a lot to do with the fact that it creates the sense of meaning by paradoxically, not making you bigger, but by making the universe bigger. And so that you actually see some place you are in the universe by making yourself small. It's a weird paradox because, you know, Mother Nature wants us to be the star of our own psychodrama all the time. It's like, yeah, no, I'm Arthur's lunch and Arthur's commute and Arthur's career and Arthur's television programs. And I mean, it's so tedious it's unbelievable and and but but if you can zoom out on you you can you have a much better understanding of why am i alive and for what would i be willing to die you actually have the freedom and the peace and the space to answer those questions now maybe 
you've had Ryan Holiday on your show before, right? Sure. Yes. Yeah, he's great. And, you know, he does this by studying the Stoic philosophers. You know, some people do this with a, a traditional meditation practice. Some people do this by, by, by seriously walking in nature without devices. Very important. Some people study the works of Johann Sebastian Bach. So Dacher Keltner talks an awful lot about awe and zooming out on the world through awe. I do this with the faith of my youth. I mean, I, I go to mass every day as a Catholic. I practice my faith and I practice it seriously. And it's the most important thing in my life. And the truth of the matter is I answer the, the, the why questions. Why am I alive? And for what would I be willing to die through the lens of my faith? But you got to have something because it's just, it's, it's just too, you're too focused on, on the minutia of your own individual life. Otherwise, why is this happening to me versus what's the bigger message? Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. I mean, it's, you can't get any perspective on on the on the system around you. You know, it's funny because once you do this systematically, and 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 there's a whole lot of brain science that that Lisa Miller talks about a lot that I've done a lot in my own research that that shows that when you're too focused in on the little, that your 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 brain actually can't captivate the bigger perspective, and you can't. Not to mention the fact that you're you're not you're you're not evolved to be in a in a modern technological psychodrama to begin with so it's really disorienting does anything if any of any of this change by life stage i think it you know for me at age 49 happiness looked a hell of a lot different than it did 25 years ago when i was 24. yeah so it does it does change over life stage and one of the ways to answer this is that you know i've got data on millions and millions and millions of people all over the world on how happy they tend to be as they go through their lives and it's very different than what they expect so most people my average age student is 28. so i teach mbas at harvard and they're 28 years old on average and i ask them what do you think you're going to be when you're 38 happier or unhappier and virtually all of them vote to think they're going to be happier at 38. i mean if they're european they might be a little cynical and say i know he's trying to trick me so i'm not going to fall into that trap whatever but basically everybody people are optimists and you know with that kind of student debt you should be an optimist and <laughs> And, and they think they're gonna be happier at 38. And on average, they're not. It turns out that they've got that wrong. They think they're gonna get happier and happier and it's gonna max out at some point, it's gonna start back down again. The truth is most people get slightly unhappier through their adult lives. It tends in their early 50s to reinflect and start back up in a big way. And then half the population keeps getting happier after 70 and the other half of the population starts back down again. That's what that actually looks like. The good news is that most people are happier at 70 than they were at 30. On that note, I think one of the things that after reading the book became clear that we're also doing wrong is the the bucket list. You, you like the reverse bucket list. Can you talk about that? Well, that actually gets back to the satisfaction problem that we saw. So if, if, you, if, if your satisfaction is your haves divided by your wants, one of the ways to manage your wants is to have a reverse bucket list where you make a list of all your worldly cravings and desires, the money you want, the stuff you want, the satisfaction that would actually come momentarily from the admiration of strangers, the Instagram followers, whatever mother nature is telling you would make you the big man on campus or the, you know, the queen of the mambo, whatever, you know, metaphor you like that actually write that thing down and then cross it out. You might get it or you might not. But the point is you do not want your limbic system to be governing your ambitions. You want your prefrontal cortex to say to you, that might come or it might not, but I will not tie my bliss to this, to the, to the, to, to getting that particular reward. That's not on the agenda for me. And saying that is enormously freeing. You might say, like, so what if you wrote if you as soon as you cross that out, it's in your prefrontal cortex. As soon as it's your prefrontal cortex, it imprints and your life changes. And I do this every year. I mean, I've crossed out half my political opinions. I've crossed out, you know, so many of my worldly ambitions, many of which I got after the fact, but I wasn't tied to it. And so it wasn't like, hooray, I'm super successful. It's like, oh yeah, that, okay, good. Yeah, but the success I have as a person, as a beloved child of God, as the husband to my wife, as the you know, father and grandfather, to be a loyal friend, you know, that's the stuff that's really going on in my life. And part of that is because that's how I engineered it consciously. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, 
all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What do you think, you know, you, you obviously teach students at Harvard who are very bright, uh, have a significant desire to do well financially. H- how do you think about achievement? And there's nothing wrong with achievement and being wired to, to try to do big things, good things. Maybe there's a financial reward. At the same time, maybe valuing family, your community, and so forth. How do you think about that balance and what success looks like there? Yeah, so that really gets into the the happiness portfolio that I teach my students about, which is that the happiest people have um, an abundance of faith, family, friendship, and work that's meaningful. Those are the four big habits of the happiest people. We've already talked about faith. We can talk about family and friendship, neither of which is straightforward, God knows. The last is work. Now, they tend to over-index on work because when you come to the Harvard Business School, nobody's saying, now let's talk about family formation. They're talking about you know getting business skills and going out and getting a great job in business. And so they're super over-indexed on the work part. Now, to derive authentic happiness from your work, it has to have two characteristics. It has two parts to it. One is that you're earning your success, and that's achievement. That's the idea that you're creating value and it's being recognized and rewarded. That's why it's so sweet when you get that bonus. But the other part is serving others, feeling like you're really serving other people. And that's actually more important. So what I recommend is, number one, don't over-index on the work part because faith, family, and friends, if you do, you'll be unhappy if you're if you're all of the eggs are in that basket. That's like putting your all of your pension in Greek bonds. You know, it like, good luck, man. It might work out, but it, I don't recommend it as an economist. And then on the work part, make sure you're not over-indexing just on the achievement part. It also has to be on the serving others part, which is really, really important. So the, I mean, I do not downgrade the importance of achievement. And I love living in a free enterprise system that does reward achievement. It's so critically important because I've been involved in you know, economic activity all over the world where, that, where people were not rewarded for their achievement. They were not recognized for their hard work and merit and personal responsibility. Or God forbid, they said that merit was a myth and it was all... You know, it's all cooked and all cronyism and, and, you know, no, man. I mean, people work hard and they're rewarded for it. I think that's great. But, but that can't be the only thing. If you're taking one part of one reward and focusing only on that, that's a big mistake. And what about friends? How do you think that's a tough one? It's a, it's a tough one, but it's weird that it's a tough one because, you know, this is what humans are made to do is to create friendships. We're incredibly good at creating friendships. We're social animals and we create friendships for all sorts of evolutionary purposes. So, you know, that we can for, you know, for the reciprocity that comes from helping each other, from the the security, the emotional and physical security that comes from having people who take care of us and we take care of them. And yet in the modern world, because of largely because of technology and, and, you know, the structure of how the workforce moves around, we've become, we've gotten kind of the a lot of deal friends, but not so many real friends, a lot of virtual friends, but not a whole lot of real friends. And, and that's been, these have been a really bad trends. So you find that since 1990, people are about half as likely to say that somebody knows me well. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that our Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says that the greatest public health threat in America today is loneliness. You know, it's crazy. We're around people all the time, but you know, coronavirus epidemic made us lonelier and we traded convenience for happiness by by saying i want to do zoom for the rest of my life you know for example which is a big mistake social media has been you know just the worst i mean it's basically like giving people burgers and fries and milkshakes to the exclusion of healthy food and it'll fill you up but you'll have too many calories and not enough nutrients and there's the neurophysiology of that is very clear there's a a a a hormone a neuropeptide that in the brain called oxytocin that most of your listeners know about and oxytocin is you know the the neuropeptide of human bonding and you get a ton of it with eye contact and touch and you need it and you don't get almost any of it from zoom and even less from social media and so when we make those substitutions we get Lots and lots of virtual friends and lots and lots of deal friends, but not very many real friends, and we starve. So for you, what what's that criteria? Because I do think for me, as I've aged, I've become a little bit pickier with friends. You know, I don't have time for Debbie Downers. I like people of shared interests. Like I, I've developed, and maybe I'm a little too rigid in terms of criteria, but I just don't have the time like I used to. Two little kids, wife, business. What, what do you, how has that changed for you? 
Yeah. So you're, are you naturally an, an extrovert or an introvert? Uh, I think probably naturally and I'm a little bit of both, but I would say I, I grew in my twenties when I lived in New York, post Columbia basketball, there was a group of 25, 30 guys. We all hung out. We all went out all the time. And then, you know, started to get older. People moved away The you know, we stopped going out and drinking every weekend with each other like the, the the numbers started to dwindle and then all of a sudden i'm in my 40s and i'm like eh, not really appealing to me anymore yeah so extroverts and introverts have a different pattern on this and what happens is that introverts they tend to do better as life gets more complicated and maintaining real friendships <clears throat> which might surprise some of the listeners but what introverts are really good at is deep loving relationships with two or three people you know, outside of their family, for example. They're good at making deep friendships. Extroverts are always looking for fresh meat. You know, they're always looking for, you know, hey, it's like, hey, all right. They're, you know, glad handing and having a great old time. And then what happens is when life becomes more complicated, when they get married and they have children and they have a demanding career, then, you know, those, they only have time for two or three or four of those. And it's just not that great because they're not emotionally deep is the way that that works. So what we, I'm, I'm in the 96th percentile in extroversion. And so I need to learn. I have one, one of my, uh, we're five. There's five in my immediate family. Now I've got daughters-in-law and, you know, I'm a grandfather and the whole deal. But the original five of us, four of us are super extroverted and one is an introvert. One's like a real introvert. And so I've learned from her. It's like a, like four dogs and a cat living in a house together. And, and I need, I need cat lessons, man, because she's got a couple of really super close friends and no matter how complicated things are in her life. She's a junior in college right now and she's killing it. She's working and doing all this stuff. She has those relationships that are deep and it took me a lot longer. So what you need to do is, is, is make sure that you've got the two or three really close relationships that are based on what Aristotle would call uh, atelic friendships, which is useless friendships. This is the key thing. If they're too useful, they're, they're, then these are deal friends. If they're really useless, but you love the person and you have a shared love for a third thing, typically those are appropriately useless and they can sustain you. <laughs> what about family? Family is pro probably the trickiest of the bunch. It can be for some people. And, you know, family are, these are mystical relationships because they're the deepest loves that we have and we didn't choose them. And, and so if you're religious, you would say they were chosen for you. And if you're not religious and you just are an evolutionary biologist, you would say, well, that's because you need kin that you're related to by blood and you get the most oxytocin when you lay eyes on them when you're first born, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one way or the other, they feel unbelievably mystical. These are people that you didn't choose. God knows you wouldn't in many cases. And yet these are the people that can make you nuts. If you have a, a schism from family members, it's incredibly painful. There's nobody who says, yeah, I haven't talked to my mother in 13 years. It's fine. I don't care. They're lying. They're lying. They do care. You know, and so one of the things that I tell people is that that there's only one reason for schism, which is abuse and and differences of opinion are not abuse. That's pride is what that is. And, you know, even big areas that, you know, you get college professors and journalists who are trying to tell you that somebody who disagrees with the way you live your life they're trying to erase your identity and your existence and they literally want to kill you those people are trying to conscript you into a culture war don't be a soldier in somebody else's culture war even if somebody really disagrees with you that doesn't mean you can't love each other and and if you and if you don't participate in that mutual love you're denying yourself the oxytocin that you need to be a fully alive human being huh. so we've referenced thanksgiving thanksgiving was last week why is gratitude so effective in cultivating happiness? So we talked before about the the negativity bias that we have, you know, where we tend to be negative creatures because we're evolved to be negative creatures. Like we have more brain tissue dedicated to negative emotions than positive emotions because negative emotions keep you alive and positive emotions are nice to have. You know, somebody's smiling sweetly at you at a party. That's great. Awesome. That's so nice. But if they're frowning angrily at you from across the room, take note. Because once you get outside, that could be a very bad thing out on the street if something is really going wrong on that. So we have a tendency to always focus. You're out to dinner with friends, for example, and you're having a great time. But at the end, there's one disagreeable dispute at the very end of the night. That's all you remember about it because you have more brain tissue dedicated to the negativity parts. So negativity is something that we naturally have, and it can be maladapted to modern life. It was good in the Pleistocene for keeping you alive. 
it's bad in the modern era because it can embitter very many beautiful things and it can make you feel resentment where you should feel gratitude. Gratitude is a chosen emotion, largely, that's an appropriate substitute emotion for the baseline resentment that we feel. So what I do is I prescribe gratitude techniques to my students where they, they think every night about the five things for which they're most grateful in their lives. They update their lists of those things on Sundays, and they tend to be about 25% happier by the end of 10 weeks Wow! with this particular intervention. And the reason is because you're manually substituting your baseline resentment with, um, with gratitude, which is actually more realistic to the, the circumstances at hand. I like that you use the, the, the terminology intervention. Uh, we, we tend to, to use that terminology a, around medical prescription. Substance. Yeah, well, medical, you know, lifestyle intervention, pharmaceutical intervention. On that note, what other interventions would you prescribe to people listening who are like, yeah, you know, I want to be a little happy. I want to be a little bit happier. Got some work here. That's an easy win. What are, what are other easy wins? Yeah, and to begin with, there's no hacks. There's no hacks in happiness. You know, happiness comes from knowledge and changing your habits and, and sharing it with others. If you want to be a happier person, do the work, do the learning, you know, don't chase the feelings and the phantasms and your one weird trick on the internet, you know, don't stop eating grapes or, you know, whatever they're telling you to do. It's, you got to do the work and you got to learn about it. Make happiness, make the science of happiness, your hobby, and then make changes that are appropriate to your life and then share it with other people. That's the protocol, right? Just your, it's learning and changing and sharing. That's the way to do it. And over the course of doing that, there's a whole bunch of things that you learn that you can actually make the change, like the gratitude list. Another one that's actually, by the way, lists is super important. It's an un unbelievably underemphasized technique in life. And the reason is because if you live in your limbic system, in this, you know, bun this console of tissue that creates cravings and, and desires and emotions, if you're doing that, then you're being managed by your feelings. If you can actually move the experience of your emotions to your prefrontal cortex, then you're managing your limbic system, which is most appropriate for a big-brained creature like humans. The best way to do that is by making lists. Make lists of everything. You should be listing everything all the time. Make them on your phone. Make them on a pad of paper. Be writing lists constantly. Here's the things that I've been, the five things I've been thinking about, the five things I'm grateful for, the five things that I've been desiring. The five things that I'm afraid of, and that's a key one. I love making lists of things I'm afraid of that are freaking me out. Here's the reason. You know, we have this explosion of, you know, people going to therapists who say, you have generalized anxiety. Generalized anxiety. Like, what the hell is generalized anxiety? Generalized anxiety is AKA nothing more than unfocused fear. That's what anxiety is, is unfocused fear. Fear actually has been evolved to keep you alive and it's supposed to be intense and episodic. It's not supposed to be unfocused. It's not supposed to, that's a modern maladaptation to, to our lives today. What it's supposed to be is the kind of thing where you hear the snap of a twig behind you, your amygdala lights up. That sends a signal through the hypothalamus of your brain to your pituitary glands stimulating your adrenal glands to spit out epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol, make you take off like a shot in 74 milliseconds before you know what's behind you. That keeps you alive. That's how fear is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be this little drip of stress hormones all day long because of Twitter. No, that's not the way it's supposed to work. And so if you want to feel, if you have generalized or ungeneralized anxiety, the secret is to focus your fear. So it's just like in the good old days when you were a caveman. And the best way to do that is to say, man, I'm feeling freaked out. Let's write down the five reasons why. Take out the paper, number one. This is a fear that I have. Here's why it's happening. Here's the worst thing that could happen. Here's what I will do if it happens. Number two, now your prefrontal cortex is involved. Now you're, fear, you're feeling the fear the way you're supposed to, and most of it goes away. That's how you deal with it. Simple list. So I, I think I'm pretty sure this is a line from you that my wife and I have now embraced. You're only as happy as your least happy child. Yeah, I didn't make that up, but uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of it that's true, and it's actually it, it's a natural tendency for us to hitch our wagon to people in our families because we love them so much, um, you know. And I've got three adult kids, and so I know, you know, they, there's these blissful moments where all three are doing well, you know. It's really great, you know. All three are are, are kind of on point, you know. On last Saturday, and my my middle son got married.
he's a really happy guy right now. And he's, you know, he's, he's just leaving the military. He's, you know, got his big new cool job as a manager at a construction company. He's going to go on his honeymoon. My older son is a dad. He just, they had their first baby this year. My younger daughter, she's like junior in college doing, you know, psychology, neuroscience, like a chip off the old blocks. Great. But there's crises coming. And there's a tendency for parents, because there always are storms on the horizon. There's always a tendency for the parents to uh, to hitch their happiness to the happiness of other people. And that's a big mistake. The reason is because you can't actually be of much use if you're unhappy because of somebody else, because you're actually falling prey to emotional contagion. Like to stay on the plane, put on your own oxygen mask first so that you can help others. You need to work on your own happiness, no matter what's going on around you. Even if one of your kids is unhappy, you must, you have a, you have a, you have a, parental obligation to be taking to keep your own happiness on point because you can't help other people otherwise so you mentioned emotional contagion you had an interesting term in the book emotional caffeine yeah that's emotional substitution so what happens is once you're moving the experience of your emotions from the limbic system of your brain into your prefrontal cortex a process called metacognition and you do that with lists and you do that with meditation you do that with prayers of petition you do that with when you're feeling angry, counting to a million or whatever you need to count to. All that stuff is giving yourself time for your prefrontal cortex to catch up. Then you have all kinds of things that you can do. You can react the way you want as opposed to the way that you feel. You can actually, you're thinking about what the emotion that you're feeling and you can substitute one emotion for the other. The reason I call this emotional caffeine, this is the, the right metaphor, is because caffeine is a funny molecule. It actually is a substitute molecule in your brain for an inhibitory neuromodulator called adenosine. That's a, mo that's a, that's a, that's a neuromodulator. It's a, a molecule that will actually has certain plugs that it fits into uniquely, and it inhibits your activity. It makes you feel tired. Your brain is always, they have excitatory and inhibitory neuromodulators. They're always bringing you up and down so you can get your balance over the course of the day. When you're too hopped up, you want more adenosine to calm you down, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is you've got a lot of it still kind of haunting your brain in the morning, which is why you feel so groggy. And so people drink caffeine. Caffeine molecularly has the same shape as the adenosine molecule. So it goes in the adenosine slots, blocking the parking places for the adenosine. So it, caffeine doesn't hop you up. It makes it impossible for you to get groggy. That's what it's actually doing. And, and one of the reasons that you actually have a crash in early afternoon is when you metabolize the caffeine, it all comes out of the holes, all the adenosine then goes into its parking places at once and makes you crash because you drank too much caffeine in the morning or too early. Okay, that's a metaphor. Substitute emotions are work like caffeine. So when you feel resentment, you say to yourself, I'm feeling really resentful about everything that's going on. So I'm going to concentrate on counting my blessings right now. You're using gratitude as an emotional substitute, which is also completely appropriate for you to do, and it can change your life. When you're feeling pessimistic, you choose hope. Not that you, you, you believe only good things are going to happen, but there's good things that you can do and that you're an agent in those things. Those are the kinds of emotional substitutions you can undertake. So what are some of the other things you've incorporated into your everyday, you know, you practice gratitude, you pray, you write lists, like what, what else is in your day-to-day -to, -day to kind of, to help work your happiness muscles? It's a lot actually. And, and that's one of the reasons, again, that I teach and write about this is because I'm setting my own agenda. Um, one of the things that I, I, I've, I always do is I have a strategic plan for, for my happiness hygiene in the coming year. And so, you know, we talked about enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. Those are the macronutrients of happiness. There's micronutrients that, that, that go into this. We write about a lot of this stuff in the book, but I keep a spreadsheet of the micronutrients of my happiness profile, and I, I assess my, my health in each one of these dimensions. I have a weighted sum and I have a scoring system and people can make these things themselves and they can say, okay, so how, what is the quality of my marriage? Is it getting better? Is it staying the same? Is it getting worse? How is the warmth of my relationship with my friends, my kids? How much am I giving away to charity? How much of my money am I giving away to charity? How much of my time and energy and affection am I giving away to causes that I really believe in? All the things that micro, in a micronutrient fashion feed into my macronutrients, 
I look at those particular things and then I make a plan for the next six months. I usually assess this very systematically on my birthday and my half birthday. My half birthday was November 21st. So I'm going through this right now. And, and I think, you know, what am I going to do in the next six months? And then based on that, I always have a five-year strategic plan. I think about myself five years from now. And I say, okay, um, you know, I've gotten 60% happier over the past five years because I measure this very consciously. I have good, you know, in the, in, in, and in the book, people can find all different ways to measure happiness. And, and on my website, you can find this stuff too. I, and I say, okay, that's going in the right direction. But now five years from now, if I'm even 60% happier than I am, or 25% happier, whatever is a realistic estimate, why will that be? What are the five things that are going to be most likely in order to be responsible for that? And then I say, okay, what am I managing most aggressively? It's, I'm always aggressively doing number four and five. I'm never doing one, two, and three. It's like, okay, time to rebalance, time to rebalance. And so it's just thinking about your life like a startup, man. It's so important because the enterprise of your life is the only enterprise that really matters. And the the currency is not money, it's love and happiness is what it comes down to. Amen. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on before we go or have any words of wisdom for the audience? Yeah, I mean, people always ask me, you know, because I, I write about this, I write, you know, 1300 words a week in the Atlantic about the science of happiness and, you know, books and podcasts. And it's like, a, you know, how do I remember this? And the answer is the same way I do, which is you become a teacher to become a happiness teacher. And everybody has a lot of leadership in their lives. They're leaders in their families or their communities or their work or their company, or they have other, they, they lead, everybody leads in different ways. Think of your leadership, your life in your, in your leadership as a, as a happiness teaching opportunity. That means learning about this as much as you can and talking about it a lot. The way to remember this is by expressing the love that comes from talking about your secrets to happiness and the stuff that you're trying and the struggles that you're having. If you're talking about this a lot, by the way, you'll, everybody will want to have you to dinner. If you're talking about happiness science, everybody wants you to be a dinner guest because everybody's interested in this. Like, so cool, right? They're not going to be like, oh, here's the boring happiness person again. No. They're like, I, I just read this book. I just saw this. I listened to this podcast. I just read this scientific journal article. And it's the coolest thing because I'm doing this thing and it's really working for me. People are really going to want to know about that. And that's how you remember it is by becoming a happiness teacher. So, you know, people watching your podcast, they do it because they want to live better lives, but they want to be more informed. And there's nobody watching us who doesn't want to bring the secrets they get from this great podcast to others. Happiness is a case in point. Learn change, share. Arthur, thank you so much. Well said. Thank you so much. I love being with you. And, and uh, you know, I got to join you in, in, I got to join you in Miami one of these days. I've been thinking about this all through this conversation. You look so relaxed and happy. Man, so good. 